class will be on the Third Ecumenical Council, the Council of Ephesus, which is the beginning of what's sort of called the Christological controversy, and that is the Church's reflections on the doctrine of Christ and how to describe the Incarnation and who Christ is. The origins of the controversy, of course, go back before the, the council. Because the council, you get to a council after you realize you have a controversy and there's tensions. Uh, curiously, the well, the we just in 381, if you remember, the Second Ecumenical Council had met and made a sort of final resolution of the Arian controversy. Now. The people who were central in the Second Ecumenical Council actually uh, were very prominent in leading into the Third Council. Uh, the Second Ecumenical Council, the was led originally. The original president of the council was the Patriarch Miletius of Antioch, who was the friend of Saint Basil, who had been the kind of opponent of Arianism in the East, and he. Uh, he was sort of the most, well, one of the most prominent uh, anti-Aryans in the Eastern Church, and it's his, essentially his, his church and his supporters who uh, had composed the Second Ecumenical Council. Uh, within uh, his uh, church, he had a number of priests and lectors who later became famous. One of them is John Chrysostom, and some of the others are uh, Theodore of Tarsus, was kind of a prominent uh, teacher. He later became Bishop of Tarsus, but he started out as a priest under Miletus. And then Theodore's, one of Theodore's disciples was uh, Theodore, who later became Bishop of Mopsuestia. And these are sometimes referred to as the Antiochian school of Christology because, uh, just like we don't think about John Chrysostom as Antiochian, he's a patriarch of Constantinople, but in fact he was originally a priest in Antioch. And there was another priest in Antioch who becomes prominent, and that is Nestorius, who also, um, he's a little later, he was uh, probably under Theodore Mopsubestia. Uh, in Antioch, he was a priest who then became noted as an ascetic, just as John Chrysostom, and was promoted to be Patriarch of Constantinople, just as John Chrysostom actually sort of very consciously following that path. <clears throat> now these were all, particularly the first two, were very prominent in the anti-polemics uh, of the time. And the problems that required, let's say, some definition on the Christology originated out of some of the things that were said in combating Arianism. So what sort of sounded like a good idea when you're trying to trying to stop Arianism from taking over, when you later on when you sort of look at it itself, you realize that well that has some difficulties. Uh, Arius was arguing that. Christ, the Son of God, was actually not divine. And the way that he was doing that was he was pointing to the human uh, characteristics and uh, 
or properties of Christ that he became tired. He was born of Mary. He died on the cross. He suffered and said, well, the divine nature is impassable. The divine nature doesn't suffer, doesn't die, doesn't get hungry, doesn't get tired. So therefore, Christ cannot be the Son of God because he's doing all these things that are not divine. Now, that equation of part of the problem is that the natures and persons were very closely connected in thinking of everyone. So because Christ was doing something that did not fit in with the divine nature, well, that meant to Arius that he was not a divine person. Now, the way that Theodore and Theodore kind of jumped in and answered that criticism was to say, oh, well, you're making a mistake. The person who died on the cross and suffered and got hungry and thirsty was not the Logos, the Son of God, but was the man Christ who was united to the Logos. So in order to answer this Arian argument, what they did was they introduced a second person who becomes the subject of all of these human activities and said, well, see, it doesn't affect the Logos. The divine Logos isn't suffering. The man Jesus is suffering. And so their solution was a two-person Christology of conjunction, which is their favorite term, conjunction. And the image that they often use to describe what's the incarnation like? Well, it's like a marriage. And in the marriage, the husband and the wife become one, but they remain two people, husband and wife. Now, how did they come up with this surprising, let's say, idea? Well, if we think back to Origen on first principles, he, remember, had thought of everyone as kind of preexistent perfect souls, some of which they fell. Well, for him, Christ was the one soul that did not fall. And so when the rest of us became people, angels, or demons, Christ remained contemplating the Father. And so for that reason, he was chosen to be united to the Logos to become Christ on earth, to become incarnate on earth. And this is where you have the introduction of two people. Now, someone, this didn't go completely unnoticed in the heat of Arian controversy. There was somebody who said, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. And that was someone named Apollinarius, who was also part of this group. He was a friend of Basil and Gregory Nazianzus and so on. And he was a bishop of Laodicea in Asia Minor. He said, well, that's a problem. You can't have Christ be two different people. So he said, well, what happened is Christ took on, there's not two people, there's just the Logos and a human body. So in order to get rid of this origin's sole person, 
he says, okay, no, the Logos is the soul of Jesus. So there's, he says the Logos, that is the person of the Son of God, and the flesh or body. And this solves, seemed to solve the problem of, you know, two different people that Origen's thinking suggested. But very quickly, everyone said, well, that doesn't sound right either, because then it means that Jesus' humanity was just his body, that he actually had no human soul or, you know, human, his humanity was only physical, right? And this was very quickly rejected by almost everybody, including Athanasius, the council that he held in Alexandria, the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory Nazianzus wrote against it. And, of course, Theodore of Mastoestia was not very happy with it either. They all agreed that this was a mistake. So the difficult, so coming out of the Arian controversy, two things existed that contributed to this problem. And that is, one, the two-person marriage view type view of the incarnation worked well against the Arians, and so was widely used. Second, Apollinarius trying to correct that error himself had been quickly condemned by everyone as creating a new error. And what got lost was that Apollinarius had actually seen a real problem, that he had noticed that this led to something which we don't want, which is that the person dying on the cross is not the Son of God. But that kind of got overshadowed by everybody rushing to condemn him for saying that there was no human soul. So the balance of attention, in a way, when you come out of the Second Ecumenical Council, of which Theodore Mopsuestia was one of the fathers of the Second Council, was towards this two-person theology and rejection. The thing everyone agreed about was that Apollinarius was wrong. We know that. But no one had kind of, so there wasn't any limits really put on this type of thinking until one of Nestorius was a priest in Antioch who was very famous for his eloquence and asceticism, and he was invited to become the Patriarch of Constantinople. He came up there and he heard a sermon by one of the priests very shortly after his consecration in which Mary was referred to as the Mother of God, or the Theotokos. And he decided that that was completely wrong. That was the heresy because who was Mary the Mother of? Not the Logos. God, Logos, is begotten of the Father. Who is the person born of Mary? The man Jesus. If you follow origin, the pre-existent soul was born of Mary, not the Logos. And so he wanted to refer to her as either the Mother of Man or the Mother of Christ. Because in the 
Mistorius is thinking, as in the others, they did not want to completely, they were wanting to completely say, well, Jesus, I mean, Jesus and Logos are two separate people entirely. They saw them as two separate people who were united in the appearance of one Christ. And so that conjunction, then, the conjunction was called Christ. But essentially, it was the man, Jesus, let's say, joined with the Logos, sort of. And as many people at the time started to point out, this is kind of resembled, it wasn't really that different from someone being inspired by God, such as a prophet. And the Antiochus said, well, it's a sort of more perfect conjunction than a prophet would have. But still, it's kind of was a difference of degrees. The Christ, you know, the Christ, Jesus' union with the Logos was better than that of the prophets, but it didn't have an essential difference. And so Nestorius rejected this term, mother of God, as heretical. And people got a little upset because this was a traditional term, actually, if you used Gregory of Nazianzus in writing against Apollinarius, he wrote a very important letter, letter to Clodonius, where he uses that phrase as describing Mary. He has some anathemas in there. He requires that you believe that. And so Nestorius' conclusions kind of, so, I mean, in some ways, the earlier two-person theology was not very public. It was more kind of academic, polemical thinking. But Nestorius, he tried to sort of bring out the implications of this theology into the public sphere of church worship. And suddenly, everybody thought, well, what's going on? We've always said that, so why are we now saying that's a heresy? And the person who responded to this was someone named Cyril of Alexandria. He was the patriarch of Alexandria. He was the nephew of Patriarch Theophilus of Alexandria, who was the one who had deposed John Chrysostom. And so a lot of people, probably including Nestorius, and a lot of modern historians tend to see this controversy, the Council of Ephesus and a lot surrounding it, as being political. That this is just, that the evil Theophilus was succeeded in getting rid of John Chrysostom, and now his evil nephew Cyril is out to get this poor Nestorius up there and kind of get him deposed on some made-up thing. And actually, a lot of modern church historians are treated exactly like this because they justify Theodore, Theodore and Nestorius. They see that as really being kind of, well, that was okay, and Cyril was just making trouble for political gain. And also, Cyril had a disadvantage of he was not a, he did not have a very precise theological language. And so in that sense, Cyril is not a great systematic theologian, but what Cyril had was a kind of clear understanding of what was essential in Orthodox theology. 
And so from the Orthodox Church's point of view, and Eastern Church in general, the Monophysites also with us revere him as kind of one of the great theologians of the church because he reached this kind of defense of what was essential even though he couldn't explain it that well. And it's a good point. In Orthodox theology, it's not the cleverness of the explanations or their philosophical subtlety, but it's rather that the truth is preserved even when you can't explain it. You're still preserving it. And this is what makes him one of our great fathers. And so in answer to the critics, I would say that Cyril is much maligned, but in fact is one of the great fathers. And this is not a kind of made-up thing. This is an essential difference in theology of who is Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ a man who was inspired or united to the Son of God, or is Jesus Christ the Son of God? And what Cyril and the church kind of affirm is that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God, and that's who we're saying he is. He's nobody else. He's only that. And he's the second person of the Trinity with a human nature, but not another person. So the person who was on earth was born as the Son of God is born. The Son of God is the one suffering on earth. The Son of God is the one who died on a cross and rose from the dead. And that is kind of the essential message, essential Christian message. And so Cyril, you know, he did go to great lengths to fight against Nestorius, and people have seen that as sort of very, he wasn't very gentlemanly, and he was, you know, a little hardball politician. But, and those are failings, you know, that we all have failings, but he was doing all of this not out of political gain, but to preserve the Christian faith. So he started to write to Nestorius, first kind of defending the term mother of God and against possible misunderstandings, and so defending the priest Proclus for using it. And Nestorius wrote back to him, sort of very unpleasant, you know, kind of accusing, you know, threatening him to leave him alone or that he would be, you know, he would get him in trouble with the emperor. But then Cyril referred things over to the Pope Celestine at the time, and Pope Celestine held a council in Rome which condemned Nestorius there. Now the interesting thing is that they condemned Nestorius and gave him ten days to repent or be deposed, which was communicated back through Cyril. But in fact, Nestorius was not deposed at that point, and the council, the ecumenical council took place, well, several years later, and he still was considered, you know, patriarch of Constantinople. So for those who kind of would think, well, that yes, in the early church, you know, whatever the Pope decided, that was it, you know, so Cyril referred to the Pope, the Pope made a decision, that's the end of the story. Well, not exactly. The Pope made a decision, but 
But then it went and had to go to an ecumenical council, and even then it wasn't very clear. So Cyril, in response, after he gets his back from the Pope, he writes another letter to Nestorius, the third letter, which is kind of an important one, which has these 12 anathemas of Cyril, which are, in many ways, a kind of good basic document for the Orthodox understanding of Christ. At the time, they were considered extremely controversial, part of it, because one of the anathemas, the 12th one, talks about Christ as being not only one of the, Christ, that one of the logos suffered on the cross. And strangely enough, this anathema remained controversial for many years, and actually when you get to 100 years later, with the Emperor Justinian, there was an effort to get the Pope to acknowledge a formula that one of the Trinity was crucified for our sakes. That was a kind of compromise formula. Well, they wouldn't, it was too controversial, they didn't want to endorse it, because this equation, it says the same problem that was with the Arius, and that led to the two-person Christology, the equation of person and nature as kind of synonyms, or kind of connected in such a way that one has to go with the other. So therefore, as Arius was saying, if the Son of God is having human actions, then he's not divine. And so they had to say, oh no, well, he had human actions because it's a human person who's doing those human actions. Now, Cyril, he was able to get most people to agree that no, there's not a separate human person, there's only the Son of God. But there was the reluctance, okay, well, if it's the Son of God, then the Son of God can't be doing really anything that's not divine. In other words, so that there was still a reluctance to attribute suffering directly to the Logos, because the Son of God is divine, and so there can't be any non-divine things happening. Of course, how do you explain that, in a way? So it remained a controversial issue, and part of that is because this Antiochian school of theology hangs around for quite a while after this council. But the final solution is, in a certain sense, the freedom of the divine person to operate outside of his own divine nature. And somehow, mentally, that was hard for people to come to, to see the divine Son of God doing things that were not divine, that the divine nature can't do, like die. The divine nature can't die, so how does the divine person die? Well, he does it through human nature. And so that kind of ability to separate the person from the constraints of his own nature was a gradual process that really is complete in the Fifth Ecumenical Council, two more councils down the road. Okay, so 
Cheryl writes this letter with these anathemas, which very kind of strongly put his position of the Logos is the person of Christ. There's no separate human person. And he sends this off to Nestorius. Nestorius refuses to acknowledge it. And the emperor decides, okay, there's a big, we have a disagreement. Let's have an ecumenical council to decide it. And the council's held in Ephesus. And Cyril goes there with many bishops, ultimately about 200 bishops supporting him. And Nestorius goes, but he, it's up to that point, he's still been serving as patriarch. When he gets to Ephesus, Cyril and the metropolitan of Ephesus don't want him to serve because they see him as kind of standing on trial and he's offended. And so he won't participate in the council. Meanwhile, the supporters, the bishop of Antioch, now no longer, Miletius has died. His name is John of Antioch. And his bishops, he has 34 bishops coming up. They are ostensibly supporting, Nestorius was one of their guys that's up in Constantinople, so they're coming up to support him. But they're coming very slowly. And the council's supposed to start on Pentecost and nobody shows. And I mean, they don't show. Cyril's there, his people are there. So finally he decides, okay, we're just gonna have the council. And so they meet, Nestorius refuses to come. He's condemned in absence and his letters are read and they're condemned. Cyril's letters are endorsed as orthodox. And that's fine, except that the emperor apparently was somewhat favoring, the emperor was favoring his patriarch and so the imperial count who was there overseeing the council is not happy with Cyril for having gone ahead and held this council, even though Nestorius is not participating and John of Antioch is not there. So a little later when John of Antioch and his bishops get there, the count meets with them and Cyril's council sends a delegation of bishops to meet with John of Antioch and John refuses to see them and the soldiers kind of beat up the bishops and wound them and send them back covered with wounds to the council. And John and his 34 bishops hold a council which they consider that they are the ecumenical council and they defrock Cyril for disorderly conduct in holding the council without them and second for heresy that the 12 anathemas are heretical and therefore without. So the council gets mad and Cyril's council doesn't like that and don't like what happened to the delegates so they depose John of Antioch and his 34 guys. So the emperor hears about this and then he's annoyed because he's hoping the whole thing will be solved and it's not solved if they've all excommunicated each other. So his solution is that he takes Nestorius and Cyril and he puts them both in jail and said, okay, you're both deposed, you're both in jail, now the rest of you work it out. Interestingly, John wasn't put in jail, which you would think maybe he should be, but he actually tried to, at that point, he tried to dismiss the council and to go home, but the 200 supporters of Cyril would not leave. 
even when, I guess the troops tried cutting off their food supply and just supplying the 34 Antiochian bishops to drive out the others, but they wouldn't go. And so finally, the emperor realizes that the majority of the people are supporting Cyril, so he agrees to let Cyril out, and Cyril goes back to Alexandria. And finally, everybody goes home, but the Antiochians are still in schism from the rest of the church at this point, because they're condemning Cyril, and they're deposed by the rest. So that doesn't sound very, you know, that's not satisfactory either. So they negotiate for a couple of years, and finally, in 433, they have the Formula of Union, which was actually a formula of faith, a confession of faith drawn up by John of Antioch with some kind of references to Cyril's objections to Nestorius. Several things. John agreed to condemn Nestorius, so ultimately, it's interesting that people try to see the whole Antiochian tradition as kind of a solid block that's unchangeable, and they all, so they say, well, look, Cyril, ultimately, he makes a deal with John of Antioch, but he condemns Nestorius, so that shows that really Cyril was just out to get Nestorius because he was patriarch of Constantinople. But if you look at what they're doing, what they're writing, you see John of Antioch in his confession of faith that he agrees to, ultimately agrees that there's one hypostatic union, and he agrees that Nestorius is a heretic and agrees to his deposition. So Cyril, in making a deal with John, is not compromising the faith, whereas with Nestorius, who is insisting on the sort of two-son Christology, the son of Mary and the son of God as two separate people, he couldn't compromise with that person because that would be giving up Christianity. So it wasn't just the politics. It wasn't just Alexandria against Antioch. It was the theology. And so this statement of faith that comes from John with some help from Cyril kind of is one of our standard documents. Now the interesting thing is in that statement, we have the one person, and also this is where two natures, Cyril agrees to two natures at this point. Now that should have pretty much solved everything, except for the fact that some of the people on each side didn't like that they reached this deal, and they both felt that these guys are just making a deal, but this isn't really correct. So some of the Antiochian school continued to think that Cyril was a heretic and to teach more of the two persons. The other major problem is that Theodore of Mopsuestia, well, Theodore too, they were both considered great teachers. Theodore in particular wrote enormous volume of books on biblical exegesis, and his books became the curriculum of the theological school of Edessa, which later 
moved into Persia and became the, the theological center of the Persian church. Uh, because of this, because Theodore's works continue to be the basic curriculum for everybody studying theology in, in the, the East, uh, this is where how ultimately the Persian church becomes an what we call an historian church because the teacher of Nestorius is there is is the uh, the textbooks for everyone. Uh, on the other side, uh, Cyril's uh, archdeacon Dioscorus also felt that the deal was a mistake and that they shouldn't have agreed to this idea of two natures. And so after Cyril's death, he was decided to take a much more aggressive uh, stand against this uh, historian type thinking. And this is what sets us up for the next uh, controversies, is that to a certain extent among the Antiochians there's a continuation of this essentially Nestorianism and uh, among Cyril's followers there were those who were not willing to compromise on terminology the way that Cyril was. Cyril was willing, he normally spoke of uh, Christ as one incarnate nature using a formula that was in a work attributed to Athanasius but which in fact was a work of Apollinarius. A lot of Apollinarius's works because he was condemned so quickly were preserved under the names of church fathers and Cyril was misled there. Now later on in the fifth council we will say uh, the council the church will say that you can use the formula one incarnate nature and you can use two natures as long as you understand both formulas in an orthodox manner uh, and so we would say if Cyril used that formula that sounds strange perhaps to us but it, but it, he used it in an orthodox way and the historians uh, they start out talking about two natures two natures is okay if you understand it not as two persons and that's a, a nice thing about orthodox theology in a way is that the, the intention of the of the words is given greater is given that that's what really is important not the words themselves but what they mean what they are intended to mean by the person using them uh, that the fifth council only brings out that thing but uh, so we end up uh, with this one where a condemnation of Nestorius which does sort of turn things towards the importance of the unity of Christ uh, actually after the after this reconciliation uh, Cyril and a number of the of his followers wanted to have the uh, realized that Nestorius was getting this from Theodore and, and Theodore and wanted to have their works condemned as well but the emperor, who all along wanted just to keep everybody quiet and peaceful, uh, and you know, and, and also John of Antioch would not like that. I didn't like the idea of having all their theological books uh, burned, you know. So uh, they said uh, no, you know, and, and the emperor wouldn't let it happen, and so uh, it was put off. And actually, what happened shortly afterwards is that the the uh, more radical followers of Cyril became the, the next problem, the, the, the uh, a sort of, again, a, kind of an Apollinarian excesses started being put forward and that led to the Council of Chalcedon, which again switched back since that the, that the enemy now is again, as with Apollinarius, on the 
side of excessive unity towards the Eutyches. We'll talk about it in the next class, but the human and divine natures becoming mixed. And so Pope Leo, who was at the time of Chalcedon, looked to these Antiochian writers and their disciples as his main supporters against excessive kind of Apollinarianism. And so that perpetuated the influence of their influence for the next hundred years as defenders of the duality of natures. But ultimately, the church will do what Cyril wanted them. Because Cyril felt that Nestorius' problems had their source in these writings, and so these writings also had to be condemned. But in the context of the danger of Eutychianism, the danger of Apollinarianism, the church wasn't willing to do that because they saw the danger coming from the other way. But ultimately, in the Fifth Council, the church will end up condemning these two authors. The part of the problem also is that they had already, before all this happened, they had already died. So some people said, well, how are you going to condemn people that are already dead? But in fact, the church does condemn the writings of dead people. In the case of Origen, when he was condemned in 400 and later, he's also condemned at the Fifth Council. It's because when their ideas are perpetuated in the church, their heretical ideas, that it's necessary to condemn them, even though the person may have died as a member of the church without being condemned. But you're saying that, well, that may be, but you still want to, the errors in the person's writings are so significant, you want to condemn them. Just to mention some of the theological, before the council, a lot of the basic theological, Christological tradition had already been established in the church in the writings of Athanasius, his letter to Epictetus, heavily quoted through this whole controversy. Gregory Nazianzus, I mentioned his letter to Cladonius, is kind of seen as a basic source text of Christology all through the controversy, everybody quotes it. And then Cyril becomes also a major source going forward. In the councils, his letters to Nestorius were held up as the main letters, and certainly the anathemas are their standard. But he's also, later he wrote letters to Sekensis and to Acacius of Melitini that are, those are the ones that are actually quoted more often by the later fathers that are kind of the best explanations of his Christology. And you can, there's, Cyril was not very well liked in the West, and there's a novel called Hypatia, which Cyril is the villain, Kingsley, I think, in the 19th century, because he was seen as the sort of scheming guy who was ruthless, and so not a lot of Cyril has been translated, but there are some letters of his in the ecumenical council volume of the Nicene Fathers, the volume 14, his letters are, some of his letters are in there. There's a volume of, Oxford Press has a volume of his letters translated by Wickham, and you may have this, St. Vladimir's has this relatively inexpensive edition of 
uh, one of his later works, The Unity of Christ, which is considered kind of his most mature and uh, moderate work on, on Christology. Oddly, not one that's frequently quoted, though. Uh, the, the, letter, the letters are more often quoted by the later fathers. But you can get it, but this uh, John McGuckin uh, is, uh, has a very nice uh, introduction here, too, that's available. He, uh, Cyril, before this all emerged, he was mainly a person who wrote about uh, exegesis, and he, he was following in the line of origin with the allegorical, the uh, moral, the uh, three levels of exegesis, the literal, moral, and allegorical, and also interest in Hebrew and the various uh, Greek translations to try, you know, definitely in the Alexandrian school of Old Testament uh, theology, the Septuagint was not considered as having necessarily a special place. I mean, they, they were trying to get back to the Hebrew in their Old Testament studies. Cyril, in some ways, is more uh, is kind of attractive figure in exegesis because he, uh, unlike Origen, who saw the history of the Old Testament as essentially totally useless, and so that you know the literal meaning of, of even some of the Gospels, you know, he thought was really unimportant and the only thing that all of the scripture was really only important for allegorical spiritual uh, spiritual allegory uh, Cyril uh, is a corrective he he uses allegory but he's very careful to limit allegory to certain things and he actually sees that the scriptural authors really were recording the history of Israel uh, for our benefit you know and that that was sort of something useful for Christians to know, and it wasn't just all, uh, you know, a, a kind of useless cover for allegories. So his, his understanding of the Old Testament is much more uh, sympathetic probably to our modern approach where we, we also value the history in itself. I think Cyril is a very, uh, very wonderful church father. I just, and he's, I, unfortunately, there's not, it's hard to get to read him because, because the uh, Western Church was not very sympathetic are, with him. Are there English translations of his books on There are a few. Uh, it's they're not easy to find because it's actually the uh, the Nicene Fathers. There's no, you know all the volumes they have. There's nothing that they don't have. The only place you can find any Cyril is in the in the uh, Church Council volume. They don't have a volume on Cyril. And the uh, Oxford movement. This the, the Nicene Fathers is based on the Oxford movement uh, series. Pusey called the like fathers of the church, and they actually he Pusey actually had done some of Cyril's uh, works, but when they when the American edition was put together, they left it out. They left Cyril out, uh, which is and is Cyril primarily writing Greek? Yes. Yes. Just going back to the <coughs> to the natures mm -hmm. of Christ, um, we could have we could have blank. Uh -huh. And say, blank suffered on the cross. Uh -huh. And another, another one, blank was tempted uh -huh. to sin. What would you put in blank? Well, it depends who you are. And Nestorius would say the man yeah. Jesus did both of those things. We would say the Son of God did both of those things. Okay. That, and, and, and Cyril's, his kind of shorthand for the divine Son of God is the Logos. He always speaks of the Logos. Because he doesn't want to, you know, by using the word Christ, well, that could be ambiguous. Who are you talking about? So he always says the Logos, or um, is actually that priest, Proclus, that Nestorius 
condemned uh, for saying Mary, the mother of God. He became the next patriarch of Constantinople, uh, well, one, one second of the next. Uh, and then he, uh, he came up with the phrase, uh, one of the Holy Trinity was incarnate. And that's, you know, the, uh, him only begotten son, uh, one of, we talk about one of the Holy Trinity. Uh, this, this, of course, that's a hymn of Justinian, sort of, it's contemporary with the Fifth Ecumenical Council, but it's coming from Cyril and Proclus' attempt to clearly identify that, that blank as being the divine Son of God, not anyone else. But it is questions of, you can ask the question, you can think about the question of people waiting it's just a blank that doesn't really have much there. And you could think of it as the who, which is right. not, but you can ask also the what, in sort of what nature, you know, who would say, like, the, 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 the nature of man was the nature that suffered on, you know, as a yes, person. Right, except person. that, uh, yes, the Cyril's theology, what, I think he would not say it that way because he wants to emphasize this, that the nature is not a subject. That so the 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 who that's suffering okay how is he suffering he's suffering in his humanity he's dying in his human nature but but this the humanity is not a thing unto itself that's suffering and this is where this became a a big problem because there was even kind of this question this whether you could separate I mean is the what the historians ultimately in the Persian Church argued is that well there's no such thing as a nature without a person. So therefore, there always has to be a human man, uh, and so that that has that suffering. That you no, know, there's a, if there's any human nature, there has to be a human man there, and this, and the Son of God, because he's divine, can only really be operating through his divine nature. So philosophically, in a way, they say, well, you have to have two separate people, and uh, what I guess the the uh, achievement of the uh, so what they often call the Neo-Chalcedonian movement, the, the Cyrillian Chalcedonians, was to finally come up with a clear philosophical explanation about how that works, that no, uh, that, that each nature doesn't have to have, that there doesn't have to be a separate human person because there's a human nature, that Christ was able, is able to be the subject of both the divine nature and the human nature because of the incarnation, and that they ultimately, uh, Leontius, in the time of Justinian, that all kind of gets formulated out. But in the time of Cyril, uh, it wasn't. You know, he he's very uh, imprecise in his language, in which you know a lot of again modern people are very critical of him for this person who's very imprecise versus this much more precise Antiochian theology. But but is imprecise but correct. <laughs> so that's why we venerate him. <laughs> Yes. You, I heard you briefly mention uh, Eutyches. Mm -hmm. uh, how does he and, and Eutychianism compare to Apollinarius and Apollinarian? It's very similar, and that I, I uh, will put him off to the next council because the the, Chal the council of Chalcedon. <laughs> see, this in a sense, really, this did solve. I mean, it answers the basic question: Is Christ uh, one person or two people, and so definitely one person. Now, the problem is, is because uh, when the next the next problem, the next heretic to pop up is another Apollinarian, 
the whole focus of the Council of Chalcedon is the other direction from Ephesus. It's trying to preserve the diversity in Christ, the diversity of natures. And so, in some ways, you know, Nestorianism, the term I use for it is that there's a sort of crypto-Nestorianism that continues in the church for the next couple hundred years. I mean, actually, it's it's a curious thing. Um, Even today, there's a, someone wrote, there's a, one of the authors of the, Orthodox authors of the 5th century, 5th and 5th councils, the Antius of Jerusalem, and there was a modern Catholic author who wrote that the Antius of Jerusalem was a monophysite because it was he, even though he was an Orthodox, that he, that he's saying, well, really he's guilty of the heresy of monophysitism because he believes that the, uh, the one hypostasis of Christ is the same hypostasis or person as the second person of the Trinity. Well, actually, of course, that is orthodoxy. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole point. That who is this person? Well, the person is the Logos. It's the second person of the Trinity. But to the modern Catholic scholar, he's saying, oh, well, that's the heresy of monophysitism. And, uh, of course, it's, a, it's even a question. Monophysitism isn't strictly speaking a heresy in that way because we agree with monophysitism on that. But he's arguing because, in a way, he's looking back, as many of the scholars did, very sympathetically to Nestorius and this group because um, these people resemble the idea of Christ as an inspired man is more how a lot of modern people look at him. So to their minds, oh, well, these people are very sensible. Yeah, they see him the way we do. Uh, in a kind of more, the more liberal. Yeah, in a liberal. And then, they see, and then they see orthodoxy and Cyril as kind of bringing in, you know, something that they don't agree with. And so they try to lump it uh, under the term the heresy of monophysitism. But as we'll talk about later, monophysitism is not exactly... A heresy, it's it's more of a of a schism and more of a terminological problem. We have to be careful. A lot of people lump together uh, monophysitism with Eutychianism, and Eutychianism is a heresy condemned by monophysitism. <laughs> so uh, by the monophysite churches, what's what the monophysites were essentially is uh, uh, Cyrillian fundamentalists, people who said that you can't, that they took Cyril's original formulas, they don't even kind of, when he took two natures, they don't count that. They said, okay, whatever he kind of originally had, that's that's the definition of Christ. And you can't add or change anything to that. And so, when and the Council of Chalcedon does add something, and so that's why they don't accept it. But, um, so, yes? Um, could you talk a little bit about the uh, the history of Nestorianism from then to now? Sure. Um, well, the initial, this this whole body of, of uh, books and, and education existed initially, it continued because of Chalcedon and the emphasis on the duality. The uh, These group of writers and, and their disciples continued in the church, were in fact very prominent after Chalcedon, uh, and continued until it was actually, until the Fifth Council, when essentially the Fifth Council very firmly reaffirmed St. Cyril, and that uh, that is, at that point, those who were 
deeply attached to Theodore, who was then condemned, fled into Persia. And then in Persia, there was even, after that point, there was a move in the Persian church to adopt the Fifth Ecumenical Council and the theology of Justinian and the Neo-Chalcedonians. But the exiled people from Antioch fought that. And because they were, Theodore of Obsolescia had been the kind of curriculum that everyone was using. Also, you're translating into the Syriac language, where this is, in a way, the Nestorianism of the Persian church has at least some terminological excuses, because the way their theological language works is a little different than in Greek. So in Syriac, Theodore's writings sounded more sensible than what we would say. So ultimately, the church around 610 formally embraced Nestorian teachings and rejected the teaching of the Orthodox Empire, the Fifth Council. And so at that point, it kind of officially became a Nestorian church. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that the fullness of the Nestorian heresy was ever really there. It was more, it was partially a misunderstanding on their part. Of course, it did influence things, but they were very successful in missionary work, because the Christians in the Persian Empire had contacts with India and China and set up missionary communities there. And that's actually the church in India today. It comes from that time. Although, oddly, what happened is when they lost their bishops, they needed some Syriac-speaking bishops, because they were Syriac-speaking. And the only Syriac-speaking bishops to come along were Jacobite Monophysites. And so they became Monophysites from being Nestorians. And now, because the Jacobite church is very small, it's kind of Jacobitism, Monophysitism, sort of dwindled within the Roman Empire. But in India, that church has remained fairly strong, so that most of the Jacobite church today are these former Nestorians. But that should also kind of be a warning to us that we look at the theology of the theologians, and you kind of can see very clearly what everybody's thinking. But when it gets down, you know, works down to the people on the street, sometimes that's always, you know, they're not always so clear on, you know, having these very distinct theological categories. And especially, I think it's because of the translation problem coming through into Syriac, the fullness of the Nestorian heresy did not really, wasn't really manifest. And so that's why, you know, that's why it seems to us really sort of nonsensical. How could that happen? Well, it happened because that wasn't, that wasn't that much the most important issue for those people. Yes? Yeah, I was wondering about Nestorius. I discussed him with a priest that's starting to be a Syrian church. Well, actually, that is what the Assyrian church is what the Nestorian church is sometimes called. Right. And he basically was kind of taking the point that Nestorius is somewhat misunderstood, that his 
that he pretty much holds the orthodox understanding of Christ, but that he's trying to find a mediating term that would satisfy some of the people in the dispute between, and so Christotokos would indicate both men and men divinity. Right. Well, it's good that they think of it this way, because, I mean, and I think it shows sort of innocent intentions that they, in looking, again, because of the difference in terminology, when they were looking at these Antiochian writers, they were interpreting them in a more positive sense than we would see Nestorius as being. And a lot of modern writers do try to see them in a positive way, but of course they're also not, some of the modern writers are not very orthodox themselves. But we, the Nestorians, you know, it's the good news is that that's how they look at him, as teaching more or less the same thing as we do, but just that he maybe had some problems with terminology or something. But that shows that, you know, they are interpreting him as being more orthodox than he really was, which is good for them. Because that means they're not trying to defend this two-person mythology. Yeah, there's certain writings in Nestorius that you could point to that would come across more as a two-person type. Yes. Well, Nestorius, he lived to be, he lived past the Council of Chalcedon, and he, in his later writings, he, he was in exile, but he wrote, he was writing, trying to justify himself, and because, of course, the focus of Chalcedon was more towards the duality of the natures, he said, yes, this is exactly, this is exactly what I was trying to say, and he agreed with it. But, even in, you know, even he finally, like Sarah was talking about Christ as being one hypothesis, and so he said, okay, I'll agree with that, too. But, when you look at what he's saying, he's still saying that, because he originally had this person of union, prosopon of union, so he's essentially willing to say, okay, well, that prosopon of union could be in a hypothesis of union, but it's different. For him, the person of Christ is always a different person than the second person of the Trinity. So even though he'll say, okay, so Christ becomes one hypothesis, okay, fine. But it's still, it's not the Logos, so therefore it's not Orthodox. But that's, I think because Nestorius was consciously writing these later works, you know, watching Chalcedon developing, and basically as letters, I mean, they were works to try to justify himself, so that's why some people are misled and say, oh, we'll see. You know, he really was just trying to be the same thing we are, but you have to really understand, you can't just look at the surface of what he's saying in his own defense, you have to read him more carefully. And also we have, if you look at, you know, the other, we have writings of Theodore and Theodore that you can see the whole tradition. I mean, in some ways they were trying, they were not trying to come out in those, especially those, in an aggressive way and say, oh, well, there's two different people here. But they, in the unity, by kind of explaining the unity as marriage, essentially you still, you know, you're still talking about two different people. It's interesting, Cyril never, you know, his analogy, he does not, he doesn't speak of the incarnation of marriage. He always speaks of it as like 
body and the soul in uh, man. So the body and soul are two different natures, but physical and spiritual, but they both make up one person. So in the same way, uh, Christ's divinity and humanity are two separate natures, but they make up the one person. They, they both find their existence in the one person, Christ, or the Logos. Yes? Do you distinguish between hypothesis and prosopon? Yes. Um, there's a prosopon, okay, both can be translated as person, but prosopon has more of the distinction, of, of kind of meaning of uh, the appearance of a person. So this is was a, the term that uh, particularly Nestorius preferred to use and the modalists preferred to use before him. The uh, modalist meaning, in, in the case of the modalists, because that they saw that the three masks of the Trinity were, hide, were different aspects of one person. Uh, Nestorius, because the mask of Christ, you know, the appearance of Christ, falls, you know, kind of, uh, you know, shows is the, is the appearance of, of the two people, Logos and Son of Mary. But uh, the term uh, Cyril really insists on the term hypostasis because hypostasis is the term Basil has introduced for the three persons of the Trinity. And so he's identifying, and, and kind of, Cyril, it's not so clear, but as you go on, uh, the, the Orthodox Church more and more kind of makes it clear that the Prokolos, uh, that that hypostasis is the hypostasis of the Logos. Uh, is the one hypothesis of the Trinity. And that's, uh, well, finally, really uh, officially becomes clear in the Fifth Council. That was actually one of the ambiguities of the Fourth Council that caused problems. But the uh, Fourth Council speaks of one hypothesis but doesn't clarify who is that, which, who is that hypothesis. The Fifth Council does. Um, so, yeah, the, because the hypothesis is, is a, is a, is a person kind of the ontological reality of the person, uh, whereas the, the prosopon is the appearance of the person. Yes. Yes. Um, my impression is that Nestorianism uh, is alive and well in much of Western Christianity and, and uh, Fringes of Christianity. I'd say in Austin, Texas, there's any number of historic churches. Uh, yes, I think the liberal, you know, liberal Christianity perhaps uh, could be described as historian. The New Agers too. Pardon? I think a lot of the New Agers as well. That could be. Um, whether now, of course, whether they even kind of aspire to historianism, or whether they're just because historians at least believe in the Holy Trinity. I don't know that all these people do, <laughs> but so it's maybe uh, uh, an insult to historians. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to uh, tag them, tag them with all these people. <clears throat> Anything else?